If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. And uh, those of you who are, have been here for a long time, or that um, if, you're, if you're new here, one of, one of our practices is when we read God's word, we stand. So once you find that, if you would stand, however you're looking at God's word, whether it's on an app or in your Bible or the Pew Bible, I'll read this out loud for us as we hear God's word. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all this is God's word amen and amen you may take a seat So this passage today, as, we, as we're launching into the book of Ephesians, it's, we, we, we've hit the introduction, we had this, this, uh, this blessing section, and we talked earlier in the first week about the setting, and this is to the city of Ephesus, which is in western Turkey, but it's also to the broader region around. It's, a, it's what we call an encyclical. It's a, it's a circular letter that would go to what, we, what I was, am, am holding to, the idea of the seven churches, the seven churches region. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and there's a number of other churches in those regions, those cities, but this was meant to go out as a circular encyclical letter. And what we have is we're working our way down. One of the conventions when you do write a letter in the ancient world is this thanksgiving section that you would give thanks for the recipients of the letter. And what we have in this section is a thanksgiving and a prayer and like our previous passage, it is, it's dense with theological stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff in here. And, and even as I was reading it, it's like, well, what, where can you go? There's so many great phrases in this. Where do you go? And one of the things I want to do, what do you focus on when you come to a passage like this? And what I want to do today is I want to provide a bit of a, of a framework or a rubric that I think that the Apostle Paul is using as he gives thanks and as he prays. And as we get that framework in place, to look at the passage through that framework, and then to ask this question, how is it that Paul is praying for his people? How is it that the Apostle Paul goes about praying for the people that he's writing to, and actually to hold it up to the way we pray, and maybe to see, to check, like, am I praying like this for people, or, or how can I maybe retask or retool my own prayers for other people? If this is the way Paul is praying, Maybe how can we pray? 
And so that's what I'd like to do. I want to I look at the rubric. I want to look at the, the overall, uh, uh, what Paul's doing, walk through the passage, and then ask ourselves, how am I praying in light of how Paul is praying? You guys with me? All right, all right, because I'll just get going, and if I, I'll just ignore, ignore, and just, it's like pressing play, and I'll just be preaching to myself the whole time. So I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. All right, so a couple things. Um, sometimes with writers, how many of you guys read? Like, and I'm not talking about an article on the internet, like, or a portion of an article on the internet, like, which is what I tend to do. Like, you say, I read an article on the, okay, I read a little bit of an article on the internet. Like, okay, but, um, uh, like, like literature, maybe like a book. Like, how, when was the last time you read, read through a full book? Okay, good, good, all right. See, I love you guys, this is great. Okay, um, now, sometimes with your favorite author, with your favorite author, um, there can be recurring characters that come through like a series of books. Like if you read in there, maybe there's a main character, but every once in a while, the same character that's like a, a side character, an ancillary character, will show up, but they bring with them kind of this, the rest of a story. And when they show up, you're like, oh yeah, I remember this person from this other book and this other series, and like I remember them coming through. Or, or maybe I should say, not rather than how many of you read, like how many of you binge shows on Netflix? Like, okay, don't raise your hand. Okay, but that's the idea that you're watching through a show and there's an old character and they come back, but with them come kind of this, this wealth of story and feeling. And like, for, so for example, um, in James Bond movies, okay, the quartermaster, Q, you guys know who I'm talking about? And you know that like, whenever he shows up, there's gonna be some awesome cool gadget, like some car that can turn into a submarine or like some pen that can like, like blow up a house or there can be, or like there's gonna be like this, this watch that can do all these cool things. Like you know when Q shows up, something awesome's gonna happen. So, and he's in all the movies. He's, he's a recurring character in all the stories. So like for example, uh, we've been watching in our house um, The Mandalorian. Anybody? Okay, you can admit it. Please do. Come on, all right, The Mandalorian. And like there's a, at the end of the last season, I, again, spoiler alert, um, and, and just close your ears or, if, you know, just no, 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 don't do that. Um, but at the end, like he's in a tough spot and you wonder how he's gonna get out and all of a sudden the shadowy character shows up and starts defeating all his enemies and all of a sudden he takes off his hood and who is it? It's Luke Skywalker. And you're like, oh, it's Luke Skywalker! Like, how awesome is that? And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, okay? But you get the idea, like, you, you see one of these characters, and they show up kind of out of context, but they bring with them a whole host of other things. I think, like, in Tom Clancy novels, you've got this character, John Clark, and you know when he shows up, like, somebody's gonna break, he's gonna break someone's arm or something like that. Um, or, like, one of my favorites is, like, in The Princess Bride, when Indigo Montoya shows up, what's it gonna happen? My name is Indigo of Montoya. Prepare to die, right? You kill my father, prepare to die. Like, you know that there's a story, there's a backstory when they show up, and I think when Paul, the Apostle Paul, has this kind of thing where when you read through all of Paul's letter, he has these concepts or these characters that show up. Some of them are more front and center, like the theology of Paul, who is God, who is Jesus, who's the Holy Spirit, but there's also these kind of concepts and characters that keep showing up, and when they show up, they bring a wealth of story with them. They bring a whole host of other things with them. And what I wanna do with this passage is I wanna introduce you to really three characters. Actually, it's four. Four. Um, four characters, three that you might recognize. 
Um, and once you see them, once you see them, and you know them, that they can help make sense of this passage. Now, I will bet you, if you've been around the church or you've been a, you follow Jesus for any amount of time or you've read your Bible for any amount of time, you will recognize these, and you probably you'll know them best from 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. At the end of that chapter, there's a line. It says, "These three remain: faith, hope, and love." But the greatest of these is love. In that context, what he's trying to pound home is the idea, love, love is, the, love is what's conquering. Everything that should be done should be in love. But these three, faith, hope, and love, these three are, what are it's what's called the Pauline triad. And there's actually, this passage is one of those passages where they show up, but there's five other places in all of Paul's writings that they show up. There's actually nine times in the New Testament where all three of them show up together. These, these three concepts were kind of like siblings. They were characters. They were things that Paul, need, he could just say them, and people would understand what he's talking about and what he's trying to know. And so um, there are lots of great and significant theological terms and concepts in Paul, truth, grace, peace, justification, but these three and four that I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring in, these three have a special place for Paul, and they're all in our passage today, and they are, and so there's, there's, there's four of them. It's faith, hope, and love, and one other concept, and that is the concept of power. Now, what do these four things have in common? Why does Paul bring all of these things together, particularly in this passage, but in other places? This is all over his writings, and the reason is this, that Paul might have a theology about who is God, who is Christ, what has Jesus done, but he also wants to explain following after Jesus is going, that believers are going to have an experience in some way, and that the way he describes it Believers, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you follow Jesus, Jesus is Lord, King Jesus, that what is going to happen is that every believer is going to have some kind of experience with faith, with hope, with love, and with power. That it is essentially, it's the lived experience. These four things, the Pauline triad plus power, these four things, this is what believers would expect as lived experience. And with that in mind, what I want to do is I, I want to walk through what are these things, faith, hope, love. Uh, we're going to do it in the order that they come in the passage. So it's faith, love, hope, and power in that order. And every, whenever Paul mentions these, sometimes he goes faith, hope, love, but sometimes he starts with, he does it in reverse order or he, or he mixes it all up. There's no one order to this, okay? So what I want to do is I want to talk about faith, love, hope, and power, and what is Paul trying to do in this passage in light of that? Because once we see these terms, it's hard to unsee them. And once we see them, we can get a sense of what is he trying to accomplish, and what does he think about his audience in this light? And also for us, like, if this is what Paul thought was the lived experience of those who follow Jesus, that we might expect that we might have experiences with faith, with love, with hope, and with power, and ask ourselves, what, how am I doing in these areas? And if Paul is going to pray that these areas might increase, 
that he might have a sense that these are things that, that you might have varying levels of. You might have a varying level of experience with understanding power or understanding hope or understanding faith or love. So let me talk about these and let, let's see if we can um, put a character to them in our theme of characters. And you're probably gonna learn a lot about like where my mind is at and my viewing experience, okay? Because I'm gonna give some characters that maybe you can relate to, maybe you have no idea who they are, but it, it's my 30 minutes, so I'm gonna go for it. Okay, all right, so first thing is this. Um, so faith, so what is this lived Christian experience, lived experience of Christian belief? The first thing is faith. And um, fa if, if I had a character, a character, a literary character, some of you guys might say this is literature, I think the faith is, faith is like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. All right, hang with me. I'll see if I can explain. Some of you are like, what? Okay, just hang with me, okay. So faith is this. Faith, if there's anyone that stands at the head, it's probably faith. And faith is the idea, it's, it's kind of the fundamental posture of a, of a person. Um, and it's this idea, faith is also translated as belief. And it's this idea of, do you have a life that is, oriented primarily toward God. Faith is the idea of a life that is fundamentally oriented toward God. Trusting, we talked last week, faith is trusting Jesus and entrusting yourself to him. And the only way that you would trust Jesus or entrust yourself wholly to him is if you had a life that was fundamentally oriented to him. The reason why Gandalf comes to mind is like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings, you've got all these people going around and doing all these things, but it always seems like Gandalf has a sense of the direction and the end of this whole thing. And that Gandalf is kind of this orienting figure in the film. And when, when Gandalf shows up, he sets the direction. He allows people to kind of understand what their role is for a time. Anyway, maybe it's an imperfect thing. And maybe you're like, I still don't know who Gandalf is. It's okay. If you don't understand, you can still understand that faith is the idea of having a life fundamentally oriented towards God. And I would say this. Your life, a life of following Jesus begins with this movement of turning from being fundamentally oriented towards something else and turning and now being fundamentally oriented toward Jesus. Not that the Jesus is just part of my life, like I'm oriented over here and Jesus is over here like this, but no, but to fundamentally orient towards him. That's, what we, that's why we talk about this idea of turning or repentance, that repentance moves you to the direction of being fundamentally oriented. And so faith is the idea of this fundamental orientation. Am I accepting the love, grace, and invitation of God? Am I in some way refusing that grace? Have I entrusted myself completely to God? Because this is the appropriate, in light of his being our creator, our father, this is our appropriate posture before him. And the best example of this sort of life fundamentally oriented towards God, trusting God, is Jesus. Hebrews 12.1 says this, that Jesus is the author of faith. He's the author of faith. He's also the perfecter of faith. And how, how does he demonstrate this? When he's on the cross being overwhelmed by Roman by, by Roman power. He doesn't fight back on his own. He entrusts himself to God the Father, allowing God, to, God, allowing himself even to die so that God will vindicate him. That is the ultimate example of faith. Jesus is the author of faith, 
and the perfecter, and that's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fundamentally orient towards him so that we can understand what faith is. Okay, so that, that's the idea of faith. So um, Paul says that a life in Christ is one of faith, fundamentally oriented towards God. So that's the first, okay? Now, the first two, we're gonna find out Paul, about his audience, Paul thinks something about how theirs is going. So let's, let's keep going, because we we'll do the first two. So faith, what's the difference between faith and love? Okay, love, love's our second one. And if we read, if we read in our passage, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, okay? Love, let's talk love. What is love? Love, if, if faith is fundamentally directed and oriented towards God, love is fundamentally directed and oriented towards other people. In, the Paul, in, the Paul's, in Paul's understanding of this term, it is about love directed outward among the church and towards other people. Faith toward God, love toward brothers. That's the idea. What is love? Well, and what is the character? Here, so here's my character for love. If Gandalf was faith, I think um, Victor Hugo's Jean Valjean in Les Miserables is the, is the character of love. Because he's a, he's, a, he's a prisoner and then he's a thief, but he has this encounter with the bishop with the silver candlesticks, and then all of a sudden, everywhere he goes, it is self-emptying love. It is him putting himself on the back burner to show love and compassion to other people. The whole book is about his love for his adopted daughter. And, and even, even if he doesn't like her marriage, like the marriage that's coming, he still rescues her, her love and drags her through 100 pages of parasur, right? If you read the unabridged version, okay? And you're like, why are we talking about the parasur system? Because it's gross, and he, so that's the whole idea. All right, there you go. Thank you very much. For those of you who are like, I still, that's your 0 for 2, Pastor Craig, on the characters. But the idea, so in Philippians 2, this is where Paul defines love. He says, look at Jesus, who being in the very image of God, did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. He empties himself. And what does he do? He becomes a human being. And what, what else does he do? He doesn't just become a human being. He becomes a servant. And he not only becomes a servant, but he dies. And he doesn't just die a death. He dies a death of, of shame and crucifixion. Self-emptying love. That's the second thing. That is what love is. Looking to Jesus on the cross, self-emptying love. Paul says that the Christian life in Galatians 5 is nothing but faith expressing itself through love. 1 Corinthians 13, all that love. Why does Paul go to great lengths to talk about love in 1 Corinthians 13? Because in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts and you have to exercise the empowerment of God through the love of God. If you don't exercise the empowerment of God through love, then you're just going to be a, a, a clanging, what is it? A, a clanging symbol, or you're just gonna be a noisy, a noisy whatever, you're just gonna be noisy, whatever it is. So this idea that it is through love that is, you're like, does this guy even know the Bible? I mean, he can't even say it. Okay, that's okay. So all that to say, we've got faith and love. Now, Love, so love is essentially, for, for Paul, the evidence of the presence of Christ by his spirit in a person or community. If our community did not have love directed toward each other, there would be no evidence of Christ in our midst. Okay? Faith is fundamental direction towards God, and love 
is love toward other people. And my, my question, just as we, as we kind of warm up to this, is my question is, how are you doing in those two things? Like, we'll revisit this. But Paul seems to think that these things can ebb and flow in, in an experience of a life of Christ. Like in this case, for example, in, in Ephesians chapter one, he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. In other words, he's saying, hey, all of you Ephesians and all of you in that seven churches region, I have heard of your fundamental orientation towards God and your love in your bodies. So he's like, you've got that going. That's awesome. And those are great things to have in strong measure. That's, that's really the foundation of building a community of faith, oriented towards God, primarily removing distractions, calling attention to God, and then love, love that pervades the people. And so to just ask the question, like, really just ask the question, how am I doing with that? And we'll come back to that in just a second, okay? So Paul hears about this, and, he, and what, he, what he then says, the seven churches in that region have demonstrated their faith and love. And his prayer then, his prayer then, is that God would reveal to them some other things. So he's, you've got these things in place. You've got faith in place. You've got love in place. You're growing in love. By the way, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, when, um, when Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus, one of the things he says is this I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. Like by the, only decades later have they forgotten the love that they had at the beginning. And I think that, that is, it, that can happen. Our love can stale towards other people. I mean, maybe not for you, just for me. I'm just talking to me, okay? Like, that, it only happens to me, but it happens, Right? that we can, we can get to a place where we're just cynical and we just don't trust people and like, I just don't wanna be around anybody anymore. Like, I'm just being disappointed. Like, our love can stale. And so to ask the question just, how am I doing with the love and warmth of Christ and of his spirit toward my brothers and sisters? I do, I, there are so many great examples of great love that are going on in our congregation. I don't wanna just, I don't wanna name any in particular, but you know if, you, if you're giving up time and energy for the sake of someone else. That's love. That's love. And it should be celebrated. And Paul does celebrate this. But in his prayer, what he asks is, he says this. So he says, I don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so he wants, that's a lot to say, I want you to know a few things, <laughs> okay? That's a lot. Paul says a lot to get to this idea that he wants them to know about something. And really, he wants them to know about two things in particular. Grammatically, there are two things he wants them to know about. He wants them to know about hope, and he wants them to know about power. You've got faith, you've got love, awesome. I want the eyes of your hearts now to be enlightened about two things, and the first of them is hope. Look at 118. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in 
the saints. Hope. This is the, the third thing. Faith, love, and hope. And the truth is, hope, if, if faith is fundamentally directed at God, and love is fundamentally directed at other people, hope is fundamentally directed toward the future. Hope is fundamentally directed toward the future and about your outlook on the future. We are, not only did Paul believe this, but I, I think this is clear, we are in between times. Things are not yet what they are supposed to be. But Jesus has come and has made things better than they were, right? Like we are in between times. Some people call it the overlap of the ages where the kingdom is coming, but there's still a kingdom of this earth that is corrupt and fallen. That before, like we, the kingdom had not come, Jesus comes, inaugurates the kingdom, the kingdom is here, but it's kind of in this incognito, strange way. We're in between times. And we're waiting for the day when Jesus will return and make all things right. But we're in, this, we're in the middle of this time where even if Jesus is on the throne, we don't always see that. Like you turn on the news and it's like, who's in charge? Like there's, Russia's invading the Ukraine and there's NATO. Like who's in charge? And all this, this demonstration, we'll talk about power in just a second, but we live in a world where we don't see God's kingdom coming. And so what he says is, what I really want you to be enlightened about, what I really want you to grow in, what I really want to drill down into you, what I really want you to know is I want you to know about hope. And this would make sense because these people, these seven churches, they are definitely in the middle of its Roman power. Like I said, we'll get to power in a second, but it's not a culture that is, that's really uh, hospitable to the idea that, yeah, we believe that there's, there's another king besides Caesar and his name's Jesus and we want to follow him and not Caesar and we're not really going to do all the, the sacrifices to all the gods and the superstition stuff and like, we don't, we don't, we're not into all that and that's not, that's not a very popular position and so Paul says, look, you've got faith, you've got love, what I need you to drill down on is I need you to think about what you've got going in the future. Because you might be, you're going to be in a, a situation and you need to be able to look forward to this. All right, now, forgive me on this one, my character for hope, okay? All right, my character for hope, okay, my character for hope is this. I, I feel like my, oh gosh, I'm even like, do I do this? Okay, my character for hope is Captain America. All right, all right, okay. And it's because of this. In the last movie in Endgame, it, at the last movie in Endgame, it's like all, all of the armies of Thanos are lined up and it's just Captain America standing alone, right? That's a, such a great iconic picture of, in the whole Marvel universe, right? And it's Captain America standing alone because there's something that is driving him about what, could, what it could, what's the right thing to do, what the future could hold. And there's always an optimism in that, right? So, okay, so forgive me if you're like, look, 0 for 3, Pastor Craig. That's okay, that's okay, okay? But the idea is that... Um, one of the best, the, the idea that um, right now there's an incompleteness and an, even an opposition to faith. There's an incompletion and an opposition to Jesus as Lord. And for the Ephesians, Paul says, there's an incompletion and an opposition to who you are in Christ, but you have to look to what is to come. 
Yes, stand strong where you are now, but you have to know there is more coming. One of the best expressions of this sort of reversal of fortune that is key to hope is in 2 Corinthians 4. I'm just going to read it, 4.16. And it starts with this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this present light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I mean, do you hear the hope? This light and momentary, even the, the, the like, what's your, it's just light momentary affliction compared to what God is going to do as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look to the horizon. Don't look at the ground that you're standing on in the valley of the shadow of death. Look to the horizon. God has a plan. There is hope to be had and it needs to be drilled deep into us. And when Paul says, look, I've heard of your faith, I've heard of your love, what I want the eyes of your heart enlightened to is hope. I want you to be filled with a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and that God would reveal this to you. Paul often talks about the hope of glory. The hope of resurrection. Look at, um, uh, look at our passage. In 119, that you may know the hope and what is the immeasurable greatness. Oh, sorry, that's, uh, yeah, sorry. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So I want you to know the hope, but before, sorry, before that with the hope, he talks about, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that glorious inheritance is this idea that no matter how much you get beaten down in this life, and no matter if, if your death is a tragic, immediate one at the hands of a Roman soldier, or it's tragic and immediate at some, someone that is, that is coming against you, or maybe your death, so like Roman power crushes you, or maybe your death is just a slow one with a slow squeeze of age or, or disease. Both of those things, Paul says, those, those are powers. What, what I need you to know is that one day after you die, you will be raised from the dead, that those powers have nothing on you. It is the hope of glory. Whatever your situation and however you're being pressed and crushed right now, God will vindicate you and it will, that will not be the last word on who you are. Shame will not be the last word on who you are. God will make that right. That's hope. Captain America. All right. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. All right, I appreciate all that. So finally, and maybe most significantly, Paul has something to say to the Ephesians about how they're experiencing power. And you can see how some of these relate. Like you have a life of faith produces a life of love, and that maybe that, that life of love or that life of faith will produce hope as well. Or maybe your hope informs your faith. Like maybe your hope is like, well, I need to fix my eyes on Jesus more. Or maybe the idea that I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus and I see a lot of love, so that's gonna move me to love. 
right? So there's, there's all kinds of interconnectedness between this experienced, the experienced life of the believer. But this last section is about power. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According, listen to all the power language. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. All right, what is power? All right, so power, power is the ability, this is hard, because um, there's a lot of talk about power these days, but power, power is the ability to exercise significant control or influence over people, either for good or ill, okay? Maybe another way to put this, a shorthand way to say. Power is the ability to form something or to transform something. You can exert your power by manipulating people to do whatever they want, you want them to do. You can force people to do whatever you want them to do if you're powerful enough, like that's what a mugging is about. Somebody comes in and robs you, they, they exercise their, they come over you and they, they take out of, out, of, out of intimidation. Either for good or ill, power has the ability to form or to transform. Okay, now this character I picked because this is, I think it's a good expression of the way God exerts authority. Okay, are you guys ready? The character that I think exerts power is Forrest Gump. Okay, Forrest Gump. And the reason why, the reason why is because when we, look at, when we look at God and how he exerts power, God has an upside down exertion of power. When you think about Jesus, what does Jesus do? Who being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God something to be held onto. He empties, he empties, he empties, he empties, he empties until God vindicates him and then, and then that's the exertion of power. It's the emptying that precedes the power. That Paul says, your power is made perfect in my weakness. So Forrest, Forrest Gump. You think about the amount of people in, in that film, the amount of people that are transformed just by being around Forrest. Think about Jenny. And, the, and how she goes through and how eventually she's transformed by this, really this, this self-empty weakness of Forrest. Or you think about Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant Dan, right? And the transformation that takes place simply out of the weakness of Forrest. Anyway, I don't want to, look, these are imperfect examples, everybody. And if you don't like them, find another one that you might think works. But the idea of power Paul believes that after the fall, when Adam, when Adam falls, that all of, humani all of humanity are under the power of kind of this interlocking directorate of anti-human and anti-God realities in our world. You think about power, even in our, in our world today, Paul will call these things like sin, death, the world, this age, idols, cosmic forces, Satan, the God of this age, the flesh, and even ourselves, the self, has power over us. Hostile powers have rendered the human race spiritually and morally dysfunctional. And we have these disordered relationships these, to God and to each other. 
And the language, what, what he says is that um, the cross, the cross is what does, exerts the most power to free us from those previous powers. You think about the cross, Jesus emptying himself out. It's not, look, Jesus could have called down an army of angels and been like, boom, boom, like just mushroom clouds and who was Rome, like we could just destroy. But God seems to think that the most powerful force on the face of the planet is self-emptying love. It's not a bomb. It's not a jet airplane. It's not rockets. It's not explosions. The most powerful thing, the thing that has the most power to form and to transform is self-emptying love. Because Paul says it was the cross that overpowered every force. Every force, every power was overpowered by this demonstration of self-emptying love in weakness. Listen to what Paul says, 119. He talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked. Remember we talked about emphatic in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mind, if you wanted to emphasize something, you say it twice, like um, you, you believe with faith or you faith with faith or you, you give with grace or something like that. But here he talks about he, you work with work. You give energy, you energize with energy. You, it says that he worked, working of the might of his strength that he worked. The energy that he energized, that this, this great might that he worked in Christ when he did what? Two things. He raised him from the dead. Power over life and death. Who has it? Does Rome have it? Because Rome would say, we have the power over life and death. That was the Roman thing. That was Roman thug. That's how the Roman peace got established. Everybody knew that if you didn't do what Rome said, they were gonna come in and Guido and Knuckles were gonna knock on your door and they were gonna make you an offer you couldn't refuse, right? That's how, that's how Rome brought about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But God says, who has the power over life and death? I'll give you two guesses and the first two don't count. I do. I have the power over life and death. And I'm gonna demonstrate that by vindicating my son who gave himself up for you. I'm gonna vindicate him. And then, not only am I gonna raise him up from the dead, I have power over life and death, I'm also going to enthrone him. I'm gonna enthrone him, not on, not on earth, I'm gonna enthrone him in heaven over all things. Look at what he says. Who raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That's enthronement language. Caesar, you think you're enthroned? I am the one who enthrones kings on earth and in heaven. I will raise him from the dead, he will have power over life and death, and I will enthrone him. The power to crown a king on earth or heaven, that is the power of God. And the pathway to working out that power is the self-emptying love of Jesus. It's power through weakness. It's the power of entrusting oneself to God. God's power is the power to create life, not to destroy it, 
we can confuse that military power, the, the ability to bomb something or destroy it. How much power does it take to destroy something? It takes more power to build something, to bring life. Anyone can take life. It, only God can bring life. That's power. Paul wants them to know, he's like, look, you've got faith and you've got love. What I want the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened to, I want you to think about hope and I want you to think about who has the real power in this universe. All right. <sighs> okay, that's good. Now, I want us to think for a second, okay? Um, faith, hope, love, and power. So again, as you're doing your read, as you read Paul anywhere, keep your eyes out for those things. That's how Paul thinks the life in Christ it, everyone is going to have an experience of this. So here's my question to you. If every believer, every follower of Jesus is going to have some sort of lived experience in varying degrees of faith, love, hope, and power, how are you doing? How are you doing? Like if Paul were to write a letter to you today, and he were to say, hey, you've got this down and this down, but what do you need, what do I really need to encourage you in? What do you need to deepen are you distracted? Like, is there something going on in your life that is just distracting you from the fundamental orientation toward me? Maybe that's it. And maybe it's about just distraction needs to be, distractions need to be removed and we just need to turn and face him. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. That's, that's what God calls repenting, okay? And that happens. That's, that, every day, every day ideally, whether again, like we said before, whether you're turning 180 degrees towards God or you're just one degree off, that just, that's a great turn. That's a great turn. Or maybe, maybe there's a sense that you might feel like if God were writing to you, he might say, look, you've got your faith down, but like, I feel like you've grown a little cold to the people of your community. I feel like you've grown maybe a little bit cold to your political rivals. Like you're pretty easily, you pretty easily write them off. Like I feel like maybe you've been a little bit cold to maybe the people, just your family. Like you've got, and, and, and here's the thing, like God will say, look, I, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. I just want you to go deeper. I want you to go deeper in love. There's gonna be places in this book where he's gonna talk about, look, I want you, I want you to know the, the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like, you're not in, you're not in, bad, you're not in bad company if, if you're like, if God says, I want you to go deeper in love, that's good company, okay? But it just, look, there's no condemnation. We just admit that. Or maybe, how are you directed towards the future? Are you, are you being characterized by anxiety? Are you waking up in the middle of the night and the heart's racing? Like, I know, I know I'm anxious if when I wake up in the middle of the night, the adrenaline immediately kicks in. Something comes to mind, ugh, and you know, you just wake up with dread. Like, that, that's not a great place to be, and that's a reminder, like, hey, God might be saying, what I really want you to do is I want, I want the eyes of your heart enlightened that you might experience the hope that you're intending to have so that you might have a good night of sleep and you might in every circumstance you might be able to look out to the horizon and know this is not ideal but one day God is going to make this all right maybe that's what we need or maybe maybe it's just this issue of do you know the truth about power how are you doing with the idea that God's power and vindication comes not through your own exertion of force 
but through your self-emptying love. We're enamored by power. Maybe, maybe it's just me, but we can be enamored, but whether it's political power or whether it's military power, we're enamored with those things. Those things look good on video, right? Those things look good. But God's power is exerted in different ways. How are we doing with that? And then the last thing, as we kind of wrap this up. <sighs> I think this is interesting that Paul, whenever he prays for somebody, like um, my, uh, my mother-in-law, she hurt her hip, she's in, she's in recovery. It, hello, Carol, we love you. Right, she's on the live stream, so we love you, okay? And my, the first thought for me is like, I want to pray for her healing. I want to pray for healing. I don't think that's a bad thing to pray for. I don't, I don't think that's bad. I think the interesting thing is, I think maybe what Paul would pray is like, okay, like he would pray for either faith, love, hope, or her experience with power. Like, he doesn't like say, oh, I'm just praying for someone's like broken foot or I'm praying for somebody's like broken arm or they're in the hospital. Like, no, he, he prays it like, I pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to love or that they would, they would have an expression, they would be surrounded by self-emptying love or that they would, they would have an understanding of hope or they would know that power is made known in weakness. Like, those are, that's not how my reflex is to pray for people. My, my prayers are oftentimes like, physical or circumstantial but ultimately i think what paul prays is he prays he prays around these four items and so i just as we kind of wrap up i just want us to just think for a second the people around you that you're surrounded by how can you retask your prayer for them this morning i just just to reflect maybe maybe as you're you're just thinking this morning Maybe there's somebody around you that is distracted and you want to pray for them and you just want to pray for faith. You want to pray that they would just, they would reorient from the distraction that they are in and that they would reorient toward a love and a, and a trust in Jesus. That's an awesome prayer. That is such a great prayer. That's how Paul is praying. Or maybe there's someone around you and you're just sensing that there's a hardness that's developing in them toward other people. Maybe your prayer should be that their love would deepen. That God would reveal that love to them. Or even that, because sometimes our love comes because we get surrounded by people with self-emptying love and that, that softens us. Maybe your prayer is that they would be surrounded by love and that love would begin to flow out of them. Or maybe somebody you know is in a dark spot and it's difficult for them to imagine the future. They're in um, what Dr. Seuss calls the waiting place. They don't know when God will move and they don't know the path ahead. That you can pray, you certainly can pray that God would show the path but that God would deepen their hope. That God would deepen their hope. That they would anticipate that God would move, that they would deepen in their anticipation that God is going to move. Or maybe there is someone that you know that is despairing of just the, the, the forces of our world, the bosses, leaders, market forces, world governments, spiritual oppression, or maybe they just feel unlucky or cursed. These are, these are all the forces that we might feel and that you might pray that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that it's not the housing market, 
That is the force that rules all. It's not military prowess that is the force. It's not political power that's going to get things done. That it's the quiet, self-emptying love on a day-to-day basis that is the most powerful thing on the face of this planet. And that they would not despair of the powers around them that are trying to manipulate them, but that they would take charge and they would marshal these forces of self-emptying love. How would that change our prayer life? And so I want to just do this. Let's bow our heads, and I just want you to pick one person, one thing. One person, one thing. One person on your mind, what do you want to pray for them? Faith, love, hope, or power? And I just want you to pray that whatever that is, that God would deepen, that that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart and deepen whatever it is, the faith, the love, the hope, or the power. Father, you hear our prayers. We are your people. You are our God. You are our Father. We know you take great delight in us bringing these things to you. We affirm that you are our God. We affirm that Jesus is your son, that you have raised him, and that you have seated him, you have enthroned him. We believe in the supremacy of Jesus, that you put your Holy Spirit in us and empowered us through your Holy Spirit, and that we have a sure hope in our future. We just want to affirm that today, Father. You hear our prayers, you want to act on our behalf because you, that's just who you are. And so we give you these things and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.